Welcome to In the Vein, a podcast by students at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. My name is Molly Murphy. I'm a member of the class of 2025, and this is a segment called The Inside Scope, where I interview current students about their academic experiences in the hopes of providing tips, tricks, and general advice to the next class. I'm lucky enough to be here with three assistant deans here at the CU School of Medicine to discuss the process of studying for step one and step two. Before we begin, would each of you like to go around and kind of explain the various roles you play in the medical education here at CU and your experience with students and helping them prepare for these big exams? I'll go first. This is Deb Seymour. I'm the Assistant Dean for Student Success, which is one of the OSL deans and uh, Assistant Deans. I also am the associate director for the docs course, which means I run the communication skills curriculum, and I've been here for 31 years. I can go next. So I am Ty Lockspizer. I am a general pediatrician by training and still work in primary care in the child health clinic, and I am the assistant dean for assessment, evaluation, and outcomes. So oversee everything related to assessment across all four years. For the context of today's conversation, I'm also the co-chair of the MBME Children's Health Item Writing Committee. And so I write questions for step one and step two. So if you're lucky, maybe you'll see a picture of my daughter and a question related to her on one of your exams. Oh, that's really cool. I didn't know that. (laughs) Yeah, it's fun. There's actually lots of professors at at your med school that write questions. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it's one of the things that I think a lot of students don't recognize is how much time goes into actually creating the questions for the step exams. And I think for me, I really love being a part of writing those questions because it really highlights and helps me see that the National Board of Medical Examiners really is trying to do the right thing. They're trying to make sure that they create fair questions that test content that is absolutely important for physicians and that they can distinguish between those students that have enough knowledge and those that don't. That's great to hear. Yeah, I think that's I'm sure a source of curiosity for a lot of students of the process behind designing the exam. So that's really interesting. Um, Dean Awadala, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Um, I'm Nida Awadala. I am a family physician and I work in the Office of Student Life with uh, Dean Seymour as an assistant dean of student affairs. I also am the director of clinical remediation on campus for students, residents, and fellows. I have been working in medical education for about 12 years, but in this role since 2019. And yeah, part of my job includes helping students get through, prepare for, um, study for, and gain test-taking skills in preparation for these big staff exams. Wonderful. So I think it's awesome that we have all three of you here tonight because while you all focus on medical education, I feel like you come from different angles. So I'm sure you have unique perspectives to share. So I think we'll start probably with step one. What advice would you generally give students who are just starting to prepare for step one as um, my class, the class of 2025 is right now? Who wants to go first on this one? (laughs) The big one. You jump in, Deb. This is... Your ballywick. Well, okay, I'll start us out. General advice for someone who is just starting out, meaning they haven't entered dedicated yet and they are just, what do I do first stage? And I think the first piece of advice is that expect to feel overwhelmed. It's an overwhelming chunk of information that you've learned. It's part of why med school is so long. And it's normal to feel overwhelmed and to want to avoid it. And that's part of the process. And You have to go through that. You can't go around it. So it's okay when you feel overwhelmed. Just move through it. That's step one. Step two involves you're kind of past the overwhelm. It's still always going on, but you need to build a schedule. And that has to include sleep time, time for fun, time for self-care, and study time. Really, I mean, it's as daunting as it sounds to create a schedule that's 24 hours a day, seven days a week for four to eight weeks, um, that's kind of what we recommend. 
but you're definitely going to be building in not just studying, but fun, time to watch TV, Instagram hour, whatever, whatever it is. And then following the schedule and not following the schedule, altering the schedule, those things will all happen. Another piece of advice is about resources. It's also normal to experience resource overload early in the process. And again, you want to go through that not avoid that. Just spend a few days, three days, looking at all the resources, playing with all the resources, figuring out which ones are going to work for you, and then pick them. And I, I'm curious what others recommend. No more than four resources is what I recommend. And then, and probably four is even too many. Maybe three is, is optimal, but it depends on what you pick. And then getting more granular within days of studying, kind of planning out the whole timeline. When are you going to sit? How many questions do you want to complete? What EPC score are you shooting for? And plan backwards from your test date. I'll jump in there just to sort of tag on to some of what you said towards the end, Deb, of what EPC score are you planning for? And just sort of highlight for everyone what EPC means. Mm -hmm. It's equated percent correct. And so although you can think about it, it's pretty similar to what percentage of questions you got right. It's not exactly that way. And that's because the MBME really thinks about all of the questions in that particular area and how difficult they are and how many questions they asked. And so they create that equated percent correct to account for some of those differences in the exam. I think for step one, the EPC is a really important thing to be looking at because that's the data that we have information on your likelihood of passing step one. And so one of the things that I highlight for your class in particular at this point in the ASCs is to take the CBSE that is offered in the ASCs as seriously as you possibly can. Be stressed, be nervous, go into it thinking this is step one and see how you do. And then when you get your results, be okay with a low number and don't sort of push away from those sorts of, you know, getting only an EPC of 40 or something like that, that feels like the end of the world. We're all used to getting higher scores or aiming for higher percentages. But if you take the CBSE seriously, it can provide you with a lot of information on where to focus your studying. Because the reality is, is that medicine is huge and everything that's going to be on step one is huge. And so you're not necessarily going to be able to put a huge amount of time into every last little piece of it. And so being thoughtful about where you spend your time is going to help you to make sure that you're most apt to pass and to succeed. And then to echo one other thing that Dean Seymour said, I feel really strongly that the students that struggle are the ones that don't have a plan and that are sort of hoping to wing it and they'll get through it. And also the students that tend to feel like all they need to do is questions. Questions are crucial. We know that. And sometimes there's gaps that need to be filled in knowledge or baseline information. And so making sure that you're thinking a little bit about both areas and using both the CBSE and then ongoing CBSSAs or UWorld self-assessments to help you figure out where am I and what sorts of things should I be spending my time on. The last thing I'll say is that our Dashfolio does the same thing. At the end of the ASCs is a great time to go back and look at the Dashfolio and figure out, you know, in first year, where were some of the areas that I was doing better? Where were areas of weakness? And how do those relate to my CBSE scores? How do those relate to what I think of as my strengths and areas for growth? And I think the biggest thing that I say with all of that data is to approach it with a curious mindset, sort of thinking like, huh, isn't that interesting? I wonder why that immunology is so low. And sometimes students push away when they see something low or they have something that feels like it doesn't fit with their perception of themselves. And rather than sort of pushing it away and being like, that's not right, it's better to lean into it 
and to think about what could the kernel of truth be there? Is there something that I can learn from this? Maybe, sure, you can blame some of it on our questions or some of it on being sick during a particular time that things were taught. But always ask yourself, what's the kernel of truth there? What could I gain or what should I be learning from that to be able to guide my improvement as I move forward? Completely agree, Ty. I think one thing I find myself saying all the time is missing a question is the greatest gift you can get because it's information about where you need to spend time. And sort of the opposite of, a, of the actual test is you want to miss things because you want to uncover your knowledge gaps and then follow those patterns. Your office ties done an amazing job of building that dashfolio that has all that information. And those numbers don't define you. And neither does your score on step two or passing or failing step one. It is a hoop that you have to jump through to be a physician. And if you've jumped through the hoop, that's all. That's what matters. And so I think a lot of it is getting to that place where you can look at those percentages of how many questions am I getting correct versus wrong and see it as this is what I need to learn not as this is sort of some sort of commentary on who I am as a person or as a doctor, because those are two very, very different things. Actually, I think MCAT and step one scores have the least to do with what kind of a doctor someone becomes of all the data that we have. It's just one tiny little sliver of a very large pie. And that's part of the rationale, Deb, for why they moved to pass-fail is that this exam was really designed for that idea of, do you have the minimum amount of knowledge necessary to be a physician? Because we all would agree there are things that you've learned in medical school that you didn't know when you were in college. And there are things that doctors do really need to understand in order to provide high-quality patient care. And so the idea is really finding that sort of passing mark of what is the knowledge that's needed to be a physician. And that's what the exam was designed for, which is why they moved back to having it be just pass-fail rather than graded. Wow, thank you. So many great things said. I jotted down a couple of like secondary questions that I thought of while you were both speaking. First thing I wanted to ask was, Dr. Seymour, you mentioned um, the resources. And I think that's something that our class has struggled with since day one, or at least something mm -hmm. that I personally have struggled with since day one, is almost like resource fatigue. It's overwhelming. And if you try to do a little bit of everything, you'll never get through any one resource. And yet none of them feel comprehensive enough to be the perfect one. And so I'm curious. I liked your idea of if you just have a couple different ones, they'll all overlap in enough ways that it'll get you covered. I'm assuming one of those is a question bank service. Yeah. Okay. And then um, the other thing I was just going to ask is if you wouldn't mind, I think there are some resources that are very common knowledge, Osmosis, UWorld, Pathoma, Sketchy. Are there additional ones outside of those that I just listed that you've heard students mention that are great resources? Oh, yeah. Let's maybe each of us can take turns saying our favorites. Um, I think Sketchy Farm and Sketchy Micro are, that's where the Sketchy Gold is. But outside of that, so there's a bunch of podcasts. There's one that seems very popular, and the guy has a really great sounding voice called Divine Intervention. And by the way, I'm not endorsing any over others. These are the ones that students talk to me about. Right, um, yeah. There's a, a very basic resource called bootcamp that is gaining popularity right now if you're if you have an area of great weakness the bootcamp videos and modules and explanations are really good to go back to the abcs like year one of med school stuff and there's a chat on one of my listservs right now about students loving it and going back to it when they have more deficits in focal areas mm -hmm. I can jump in. I think some of the other resources that I hear commonly used by students. So the one that I think, as you mentioned, everyone pretty much uses is UWorld, just because that sort of is the tried and true in terms of a question bank, and then also has some sort of content embedded within it with the answers. AMBOSS, we're seeing a lot more students using now, just given the availability of it for our students. 
The other two, Boards and Beyond, is one that I hear from a lot of students that is helpful for content review. And then another newer one that I find interesting and is a little bit different is a place, something called USMLE, Y-O-U-S-M-L-E. And they're very based in some of the learning science and so have a very interesting blog with some suggestions and thoughts for approaches to studying and are very focused on the idea of understanding concepts rather than memorizing facts. Uh, and I think that part of why I'm drawn to that is because I think that that really is how to excel on the exam, that if you just try to memorize all of these little pieces of facts, it's not going to work because the way the questions are written are really designed for application of knowledge, not just sort of spitting it back out or memorization. Yeah, they're all two-step questions. You have to know something and apply it. Yeah. I'll just add in first aid as an outline. It's not a really good overall comprehensive content review, but it, it is worth, I think, looking at for an outline of where you might start. And then as far as question banks go, my suggestion is to start thinking about as, as you map out and plan a schedule is to think about doing about 2,500 practice questions. Generally, that's been a good spot. Some students need more. Some might be able to get away with less. I think that baseline CBSC will help you better identify weaknesses and where to look for resources. Like if you find there's a particular area of need, you can delve into that deeper. But I think looking at all of those pieces that we talked about before to say, is there one area that I'm really struggling at? And then going back to that original resource or a new resource potentially could be helpful. I think the last thing I would say is this sort of piece of there's a lot of FOMO of feeling like, oh, I just picked the wrong resource. And if I could find this other one, then everything would be perfect. And the reality is, is that none of these resources are perfect. And so in some ways, we can sometimes see students that spend a lot of their time searching for that perfect resource. And that is time that could have been spent studying. And you will hear from your classmates, everyone uses different things. And the first reaction can be, oh my gosh, am I doing the wrong thing? Am I not studying the right way? Experience that, accept it, and then take a deep breath and say, nope, I'm doing me. They're doing them and realize that there's no one way to do this. And the most important thing is to have a plan and to keep moving forward with your resources that you have selected. I think you're right. The FOMO is a good description of it. But yeah, thank you so much. There was a few in there that I've never heard of. So that's really great to know. For the record, too, because I think there's a lot of myth. The U World is a better question bank than AMBOSS. I know it's been around longer, but plenty of students you found have had success with AMBOSS as their question bank, correct? I only know two students who only used AMBOSS. Yeah. Both of those students passed, but almost everybody gets... Uh, U World just because it is older and we know more about it. What people are saying now, both on the national level and the students that I talk to, is that the questions are better in U World, but that some of the explanations in AMBOSS are better, that it goes into more depth, depth and teaches things a little bit more clearly than some of the U World okay. um, tutorials and whatnot. I think this is our first year where AMBOSS is free and so as widely used. And so in the past, it was something that students would have to pay for. And so I think because of that, most students would opt to pay for UWorld just because it sort of is the tried and true. And again, there's not one right way to do it. I think that all of us in working with students have the most experience with UWorld, but that doesn't mean that if you feel like there's something that fits better for you, that you can't go down that path. Okay. Thank you. I appreciate that. Because yeah, I think in our class, I imagine a lot of people are using AMBOSS. And like you said, it, I think it is because they newly got a subscription for the whole class this year. So it'll be interesting to see. But in my experience so far, I've liked it. And I used UWorld last year for shelf exams, but they are a little different. So I can see where people have their preferences for sure. The other thing I was going to ask, I was curious, obviously the very traditional way of doing it is a dedicated period where you have a certain number of weeks off. Um, I think it's usually two to four weeks where that's all you're doing is studying for step. Have you heard of students studying for STEP during the ASCs, um, the advanced science courses, which our class is in right now, and not actually spending that much 
dedicated time studying, like taking step two earlier on and having the bulk of their studying be spread out in smaller doses over a longer period of time. So I would say like in general, absolutely. Okay. That there is so much variety in what students do based on sort of where they're at coming into the ASCs. And again, that's where that CBSC at the end of November Every year, we will have students that get a passing score on that CBSC and end up with an EPC of 68, 69. And so for those students, they absolutely should just take the exam within a week, get it done, move on to step two or other sorts of things. That is the exception and not the rule. And so I don't want to give your class the assumption that if they don't end up with a 68 on that CBSC, <laughs> something is wrong with them. Right. <laughs> but at the same time, there's so much variety in where students are in terms of their studying and preparation for these exams that we see everything from that sort of, I just studied during the ASCs and was you know ready after a week or two to I need a lot of focused time, both for questions and for studying. And so it's, it's anything goes based on you. And I think that that is hard because it means that then that choice is in your hands versus us sort of telling you, this is when your test is, you have to study and you don't have another option, you've got to take it. And so it becomes much more of an individualized decision about when is the right time to actually take it. To that note, what is considered a target score that students should be aiming for on practice exams in order to feel comfortable enough to sit down and take the real exam? Because I know there's some variability with practice exams, obviously. And so, yeah, I was just curious, like, what do you advise as the goal? So I would say the three of us have spent 10 hours cumulatively talking about this very question. Um, And then I've spent another 10 talking with people around the country who do this kind of advising. And we're loath to answer, but we will. (laughs) I I almost don't want to be the one to say it. Um, (laughs) Huge disclaimer. (laughs) You will get whatever your EPC is in the upper right-hand corner of your report. It will say, if you sit for step one in the next week, your chances of passing the test are X percent. The highest you can get is 99%. What that 99% means is not 99% of the questions correct. It's 99% likely that you will pass, which is measured at the lowest possible passing point. And it's a window. And so if it were me, I would want to wait until I got to that number. And that number, I think this year is going to be 68 or 69. But 66, which is the number that we chose to answer your question, that is a 96% or 97% likelihood of passing. So it's a little bit of a moving target because they are always changing the test and the questions, but not a hugely moving target. But it's not just that. That is a key indicator. It also, and maybe Nita, you're very articulate about this one, is how many questions you've done and what, how you're succeeding with the questions. But if you've done no studying and you sit down and you get a 69 or a 72 EPC, then yeah, schedule the test and take it within seven days, period, end of story. I think that's the rare the exception. And I think people who score fairly high on that CBSC have been studying. It's not just a random score. I'll say in the years I've been doing this, and I know, you know, the scoring has changed, but generally speaking, students who complete about 2,500 questions, 2,000 to 2,500 questions, and are scoring 65% or greater on that question bank, generally will score around a 65 or 66 EPC. And I suggest to students, once you're hitting like 60% correct, start taking some of those practice exams, because then we'll have a more clear indicator. I would actually take it earlier than that. I would too, because I think that it can provide useful information, even if you're not sort of close to passing. Nita, would you feel comfortable with 55% on your UWorld blocks? Yeah, I mean, there's no rhyme or reason. I just sometimes see students who are taking them weekly when they're scoring 40, and then they get to 60 several weeks later, and they don't have any more left. Uh, That's Um, a really good point. I also see some burnout when they do them regularly. And so I feel like a November 20th baseline is is a great starting point. And then maybe two weeks later, hopefully a lot of students are at goal. That's just my suggestion. But again, there's no rhyme or reason to it. 
Well, similarly to what you're saying, Nita, I tend to encourage students not to take a CBSSA or practice UWorld exam more than every two weeks, just because of the issues that you mentioned of burnout, and also the fact that you're probably not apt to see a huge change within one week. And so I found that sometimes when students do that, it can be almost more disheartening than helpful. And so trying to give yourself a little bit more space in between taking those exams to really be able to see that improvement. But one thing that I would just highlight is that so the low pass range for step one is between 62 and 68. And so that means that somewhere in there is where that passing cutoff is. And that's why there sort of are those percentages of how likely you are to pass. They also say that the standard error of your score is four points. So that means that if you get a 62, that 62 could have just as easily been a 58 or it could have just as easily been a 66. And so I think that sometimes that can also help in your mind that that 62 of, oh gosh, it could have been a 58, which would be clearly failing. Maybe I don't want to sit quite yet versus the 68. Okay, the lowest it could be is 64, but it could also be a 72. That feels pretty good. Um, so just sort of thinking about that, and everyone has very different tolerance for that sort of risk. And, you know, we've heard from Deb, she's definitely get to that 99%. I have definitely talked with some students that are not that way, and they are willing to take that risk and say, ah, oh, 90%, 95% is good enough. We encourage trying to get as high as you can, because failing step one is definitely more of a challenge to sort of overcome in terms of residency applications and things like that. And so that's why we tend to be more conservative because we want to try to help protect you from that sort of potential of failing step one. And I think that's where the whole picture comes into play for me is, you know, a student might get a 66 and have done 40% of the question bank and I hesitate to say, great, you're ready, you know, or is scoring 50% on questions, that to me is still not, you know, ready. So I think looking at the whole picture is really important. That's great. Thank you all so much for those responses. I am curious how your study advice changes when it comes to studying for step two, especially the length of time, resources, that kind of thing. Obviously, step two is not pass-fail, so that changes things a lot. I can jump in for step two. I think step two tends to be a little bit, I don't want to say easier because it's, it's a difficult exam, but I think people tend to relate to it a little bit more. Finishing up the LAC and, you know, feeling like they're a doctor or, you know, close to being a doctor. And I would say ideally studying for step two comes at the very start of the LIC. And so for those of you who are listening to this early, Ideally, as you are preparing for the LIC and your clinical time and your shelf exams, you're building a study guide and you're reviewing those that study material regularly. And if you haven't, that's fine too. But particularly for the test, similar to step one, I would say pick a question bank, whether it's UWorld or AMBOSS, and a comprehensive review resource. A lot of our students like the review material that comes with AMBOSS. I haven't reviewed it myself, but they say that, you know, it's been helpful. A lot of our students like online med ed. I personally like books. And so while I say a review resource, that might be like a series of books, potentially like blueprints or whatnot. But it really just depends on how our students have learned through those shelf exams. Similar to step one, I would say the goal is about 2,000 to 2,500 questions of a question bank. And then I always say set a goal. And so this test, the number actually does matter. And then depending on that goal, ideally it's at least average. That will help that. And then the practice exam that they have taken already, correct, Dr. Loxweiser? They've taken one at the end of the foothills. That was the CCSE that your class took right as you were finishing the foothills and did very well on. We were very impressed with how your class did. And you'll actually take another one in the base camp in January. And so again, similar to the CBSE in the ASCs, that's designed to be sort of your baseline going into the study period, helping you to figure out where should you focus on, where is it most worth your time. I think the big things I would say about step two 
is that this is where sort of students' specialty choice definitely comes into play a little bit more because there are certain specialties that really do expect and want a higher step two score. And so again, I feel like this is a place where it's really hard to sort of be talking to some of your classmates, because if you're going into general pediatrics like I did, the expectations might be different than urology, ortho, neurosurgery. And so just sort of know that. And it doesn't mean that the urologists are smarter than the pediatricians because they got higher scores or things like that. It relates to what's needed for the application. I think that then oftentimes can influence how long people choose to study for. Because obviously those students that really need that really high score will spend longer than the students that are aiming for average, which is just fine in fields like pediatrics and medicine and family medicine. And so I think that idea of knowing that you are not the same as any of your classmates. And so it's okay if your approach is different. This is something I've always been curious about. So I know obviously failing step one can be a very difficult process. I'm sure the retake of that is very stressful. For step two, obviously the concept of failure, I feel like, is in the eye of the beholder of the student. Like you said, different students are going to have different score goals. And what would happen if a student doesn't meet their score goal? Is there an option to retake step two? Is that something you... No. Okay. That's not something that you would... It is possible to fail it. There is a minimal passing score. Okay. But yeah, once you get your score, you cannot retake it. Okay. And I think that, again, similar to what we've been saying before, this is one piece of data in your application. That number does not define you. And so, you know, if you end up with one point above passing, could it make it a little bit more difficult for you to get the residency spots that you want? Yes, but it doesn't make it impossible. And that, you know, there are a lot of residency programs that are moving to more holistic review. And so they want to know that you can pass these exams because you have to pass your board exams for each of the specialties. But it is not the be all end all. Do some programs, especially the competitive ones, set a score and screen out applicants based on that score? Yes, absolutely. So maybe you'll get screened out from some programs But I sometimes ask students, is that the program that you wanted to go to anyways? And really thinking about this as it's about fit and where are you going to thrive? And if their emphasis is on sort of multiple choice tests and that's not your strength, then maybe that's not the program for you anyways. Importantly about step two is there are fewer NBME practice exams. There's only four of them. Mm -hmm. I've heard there's a fifth in the hopper but there's only four. And so you want to be very judicious about when you take them and how you're using them because you can run out, especially if you're going for a higher score. And again, the CBSC that we offer you is different than the ones that you can buy yourself. And so that's part of our rationale in giving you the CBSC is that it offers you another practice exam for free and something that you couldn't otherwise get yourself. And so again, I sound a little bit like a broken record, but take it seriously. You know, if you go in and you just circle C for absolutely everything, it's a waste of your time and it's a waste of our money. But if you take it seriously, it can be really helpful in figuring out where to focus your studying. I find with step two, sometimes it's really pushing students not to study the material that they're good at and that they're most interested in. So for me, I wanted to study more about pediatrics, but I was scoring okay on that. And what I really needed to do was review surgery and review internal medicine and geriatrics and all of that sort of stuff that I it wasn't my thing. But that was what was going to help me to get a higher score rather than diving into what it was that I already know something about. And so reminding yourself about that, that sometimes this means that you're going to spend more time on the things that you're less interested in. And that is okay and in fact expected. Does the scoring for step two work similarly to that of step one for practice exams where there's like a four point margin on either end that is predictive of your score? Yeah, they give a window, but they also give you a numeric score. Okay. Mm -hmm. 
so that you could see sort of an approximate. It's, it's like an EPC that approximates to what your ultimate score would be. Okay. Yeah. I think the error is slightly different on step two. Oftentimes we tend to think that the CCSSAs or the CCSE underestimates what your score might be on the actual exam more than it overestimates it. Okay. Um, but I tend to think about it fairly similarly. And definitely, I think that the score report that includes the EPCs for each of the different disciplines is really helpful because it allows you then to sort of compare yourself to yourself. And so if you see, gosh, I'm getting a 75 in OBGYN and a 47 in medicine, then that tells you where to spend your time. The other thing with that is to look at what percentage of questions are in each of those fields. OBGYN and psychiatry make up a smaller percentage, whereas medicine is usually at least half of the exam. And so if medicine is something that you're low in, then you got to put the time into medicine. Importantly, that's also true for step one. So yeah. the pathophysiology is up to 60% of the test. And it's not a secret. They tell you exactly the low end and the high end of percentage of each content area in your the reports you get back from NBME for both CBSEs and CBSSAs. And so you'll want to study that. And that will help you define your resource too, right? For example, if medicine on step two is an area you're not doing so well on, it might be worth investing in a book like Step Up to Medicine or OB Blueprints and things like that to say, I actually need to focus some time here. It's my one weak point. Yeah, that's great to know. I actually didn't really realize there was such a discrepancy. And you can find that out either by going to the website or by actually looking at the reports on the CBSE and the CCSSE, they give you some of that information as well. Okay. Mm -hmm. It's a really good point. It's a really good use of one day of the time during the ASCs to go to the NBME and the USMLE websites and look at their PDFs, look at their links. They actually have one of their documents. It's about a 28-page document that just lists in learning objective format everything that's on step one and everything that's on step two. They have another PDF that literally tells you the percent of questions on the actual test in a window. So it's not, it is not secret and it is not mysterious. You just have to be brave enough to go and look. And it is that list that we write questions from. So I get some of those different objectives or things like that, that, you know, can you write a question about disorders of the great vessels? And I'll write a question about that. And so again, then BME is trying to be as sort of transparent of what it is that they're going to be testing. And so it's up to you to then make sure that you feel like you understand that. I oftentimes find that those learning objective style things is too detailed. That is too much. You can get sort of lost in the weeds with that. But that really looking at some of the big breakdowns in terms of discipline or big fields in medicine can be helpful. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Thank you so much. That was so much more in depth than I was even expecting, which I appreciate. We can move on to mistakes if you guys would like speaking from your own experience working with students and specifically Dean Awadala, I know that you deal with remediation a lot. So I'm curious what you all have found are the most common mistakes that people make studying in med school in general, but more specifically for these step exams and also what you've heard from students about what did not work well during the study process. I think going in without a plan is probably one of the bigger mistakes that we see across the board in medical school going into a course or a test without a plan. I would say particular to step one and step two, not asking for help when when help was needed, I think is really a big mistake. There's a lot of help on campus, whether it's myself or Dean Seymour or Dean Luxweiser or any one of us in LSL. There's student mental health, which can help with some test-taking anxiety or ADHD type things. And then there's obviously we could refer for learning differences if needed, um, if a student feels like that might be an issue. I would say when it gets kind of towards the end of study period, students tend to be burned out. And since so I would say not planning in rewards, rest time, self-care throughout in this plan. I like to say take one day off a week 
and then give yourself rewards each day, whether it's a show, a movie, a run, whatever, a hike, schedule in walks throughout the day, get some fresh air. Students who have not passed have taken the test before that they were ready. And they didn't reach out and they only maybe completed 40% of the question bank and were scoring 50% correct. And then went ahead and took the exam and, and none of us knew that the student may have been having difficulty. They were probably burnt out. And then they went ahead and said, I'm just going to get through this. I'm going to do the best I can. And that's the last thing we want to see. We want to see you ready. We want to see that you've prepared. We want to give you help when needed. When you're feeling burnt out, it's okay to take a break. Students will say, I'm just so tired. And I'm like, take four or five days off and they come back and they're ready to do it again. And that's totally okay. So listen to your body, listen to how you're feeling and just reach out, reach out, make a study plan, make sure you are taking care of your mental health. Make sure you're just taking care of your body, eat well, exercise, get fresh air. And then we're here to help you along the way. Yeah, I have some to add, but I, I just want to emphasize what, you know, what Alice said is like taking care of yourself, have fun every day. Don't compromise on sleep. Not sleeping is one that's just the kiss of death. Eight hours of sleep should be part of the study schedule. A couple others I want to add. Um, one is the uh, improper use of Anki or sole reliance upon Anki to succeed. Anki has its place. It's absolutely a fabulous tool for doing spaced repetition of things you need to memorize and keep in your mind and not lose to the forgetting curve is not a good tool for learning things the first time. It's also not a great tool if you build one-step Anki cards, like what is the genetic sequence for X disease? And then you just flip it over and that's there. That's not especially useful, but applying it, two-step Anki cards, much better. So if you use it right, Anki is your friend. But if you're spending four or five hours a day doing Anki and you're not doing it right, it's a recipe for disaster. And then I'm aware of there being out there free fake NBME tests that supposedly have all the same questions that they've somehow been crowdsourced to have all the same questions as the CBSSAs. I know several of our students who use them. They're self-scored. I've never seen them. I don't know what they are. I've only heard about them. I don't think they're even accurate. So don't use those. It's worth the $60 to buy the NBME tests and get all that data back and be sure you're not getting some weird data. And NBME offers one that is free, the free 120. Mm -hmm. And so that absolutely you should do. I think I jumping in sort of of what I see, I think the biggest thing is what Dina Wadala said, that to me, the mistake is not reaching out. You know, I say this about the progress committee and assessment in general, that like everyone needs support in medical school and some people more than others, sometime more than others. The students that worry me the most are the ones that think that they can do it alone and that don't reach out when they're struggling or think, I'm just going to give it a chance and it's going to work out. Those are oftentimes the ones that it doesn't work out. And then I think the other thing is that piece of sort of pushing yourself too hard and assuming that if eight hours of studying is good, 16 hours is better because that just does not plan out. Your brain needs time to process, to rest, etc. And so building in that time for exercise, that time for sleep, think of it as actually allowing your brain to sort of process everything that you've been learning and studying. So it's not a waste of time in terms of your score. It is something that you absolutely need to do. And so that's why having a plan and a schedule and a sense of what you're going to do so that you don't have to worry, oh gosh, am I going to run out of time? Am I going to cover everything? How many questions am I going to do? That's why it's nice to put the time into creating your plan at the beginning and then just sort of following it. And so then you know, okay, I'm going to get to where I need to get to at the end. I just follow this. I think the other thing that I sometimes see is people trying to do way too many questions and just focusing only on questions and then not focusing and not reviewing the questions as much because they're aiming for quantity, not quality. Yes. And so really trying to say, you know, if you have to sacrifice one, it absolutely should be quantity. Um, you know, I agree with Dean Awadala that we want you to do a certain number of questions, 
but just getting to 2000 or 2500, but not doing them thoughtfully and reviewing answers is probably not going to have the same benefit as, you know, doing 1800 to 2000, but doing them thoughtfully and well. And just to add on Dean Lockspicer, she alluded to this earlier, content review is really important. I like to say questions should be reinforcing information you've already learned um, and should not be your primary means of learning information. And so if you've got a great foundation, great. But we all have some weak points that we should be reviewing. And so putting that time into review based on prior, the Dashfolio and prior practice exam scores, I think is important. The other thing that I'll say is sometimes, and it's not very often, but I see a student who has only done questions in tutor mode. And I would say once you get through your content review and probably about midway of your study period, you should really switch to test-taking mode to mimic those test-taking conditions, making sure you have that adequate time, you know what the time is like, and really, really trying to mimic those conditions as best as you can. Because if you do things in tutor mode the whole time, that's not how the test is going to be. And so that would be the one other thing I would add. That's a great point, Dina Wadala. And I also, the other thing that I mentioned about tutor versus timed mode is when you switch to time mode, you're actually seeing everything twice. And so if we think about spaced repetition, by doing it in timed mode, because you spend the hour going through those questions and you started with something about cardiology and then you ended with something totally different, then you probably take a break, have a snack, stretch, and then you come back to it again. And so all of a sudden, you've taken one opportunity of looking at that particular material and doubled it. And I do find that students who don't use the timed mode seem to struggle a lot more towards the end because they don't have that sense of the endurance. They don't have that ability to focus on one question after another. And some of it is also then that piece of how do you sort of psych yourself up when you get a question that you have no clue? And what do you do when you're faced with a block of questions that just feels impossible to you? And sort of working on some of those mental strategies are just as important as actual sort of content knowledge and being able to answer the questions. One of the other things that I highlight is that a lot of questions on STEP are being pre-tested. So we pre-test questions where we get data from students across the country to make sure that they're performing adequately and that there aren't any problems. It's the same thing that we do with all of your assessments where we look at that data, we see what percent of students got it correct. Are there any things that are sort of seeming weird that there's a problem with the question? So this is just in my mind, but every time I got to a question that felt impossible on step, I just told myself, oh, it's just pre-testing. It's okay. Something's wrong with the question. It's pre-testing. Move on. Right. That is actually how I coach students is that's real. Like if you come to a question and you can't answer it, it, not all the questions are counted in your score. Those ones you're talking about, they throw those ones away. Yep. So if there's one that you just hate, just tell yourself it's a throwaway. And there's, I don't know, what is it, like 30 or 40 of those? There's a lot of them on every one. Yeah, exactly. And so that, and and obviously you'll never know which were the ones that were pre-testing and not counting to your score. But again, this is more about sort of the mind game for yourself of keeping yourself in a good place. Because I do find either on the practice exams or the exam itself that if someone gets into a bad mental space and they're sort of spiraling of, I didn't know that question, and now I don't know this question, and now what am I gonna do? I think I'm gonna fail. That all of a sudden can really derail you. And so trying to keep yourself in that positive mindset is really important for doing well on the exam. A segue to the point about tutor mode versus test mode. Mm -hmm. I I actually think very little tutor mode, but another is, are you going to do the questions in blocks that are a focus subject, or are you going to do random questions? And the advice I give on this is early in your dedicated study period, while you're doing your content review, it may make sense to do some blocks, especially in your weaker areas that are focused. So you're just going to click the box for maybe cardiac and pathophysiology and have 20 questions in one focused area so that you can go deep and you're going to spend a good four or five hour day focused in on that area. But 
for sure after the beginning of your dedicated, you do not want to be doing them in those blocks. You want to be doing them random. It's much harder. And so knowing when to make that switch, I'd say the earlier, the better. But also if you have big gaps in your knowledge areas that are really low, then it is okay, especially if you have two question banks, to make focused blocks, do two hours of pre-studying, then go in and do the questions, and then go back to the same materials to study up on the questions that you missed. But that key of switching over and making your mind go from peds to embryology to genetics to uh, what is an RO1 study, or that is hard work and you need to practice it. Thank you so much. Is there anything else that we didn't get to that you wanted to add? I think I just come back to the same thing, that we are here to support you. Our goal is for you to be successful. We love meeting with students. We want to help you succeed. It's okay if you reach out and start crying or don't have a plan. It is so much better for you to reach out and have a conversation with us than sort of putting your head in the sand or trying to do it on your own. Reach out and how to do it is email us. Mm -hmm. Just send an email. We'd love to meet. Here's the five or six hours I have available in the next eight days. Also send your practice exams. You can turn, NBME has a site, you can turn them into PDFs and send them to us and we will look at them ahead of time and do an analysis of what we see there and talk to you about it when we meet. Nothing bad can happen to you for meeting with any of us. Nothing goes in your record that you met with us or talked to us in any way, shape or form. Wonderful. Well, thank you all so much. Hopefully anyone listening, this um, raises awareness about all the resources out there and how lucky we are to have all of you at our disposal. So thank you. On behalf of the class of 2025, I appreciate it. Thanks for joining us for this episode of In the Vein. We'd like to thank our interviewees for helping make this podcast possible. If you have ideas for an episode or have a suggestion for how to make our show better, please reach out to us at inthevainpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.